Hey writers, KJ here, sounding a little vocally fresher than last week if you're listening to this in real time and in order. I am here to reintroduce to you an episode that I um, personally desperately needed to listen to this week. This is our episode on um, in inner dialogue, when it is telling and when it is showing and when it works and when it doesn't because there is a huge difference between a character thinking about all the things that the reader needs to know in order to place themselves in time and space and backstory and a character mulling in their own mind over stuff that they need to know and they need to think about but would not say. So this is us talking about the difference. In this week's show notes, I have added an example of the phase of writing that I'm in where I really need to know this. I call this pre-writing. Serena and I both do it. And for me, it is a phase of writing where I'm really only dialogue, the very most important thoughts, which you often can't tell in the process of me writing from dialogue, um, the, and then statements of movement. And I just discovered that I have a document that's basically the entirety of playing the witch card written that way, which delighted me because it's pretty much what I am doing now for what I hope will be my next novel. If you subscribe to the show notes, I put an example of that right in there. So you can probably see those in your pod player, but a better way to get to them would be to head to amwriting.substack.com or amwritingpodcast.com and just hit subscribe. It is free. You will get all the weekly show notes and you will get all these new things that we are doing on a weekly basis that are not necessarily an audio episode. So you definitely want to do that. Meanwhile, I really needed this conversation that we had a couple of years ago, actually, about interiority and um, when it's useful, when it's too much and how to do it best. And I hope it is useful for you as well. Happy listening. Is it recording? Now it's recording. Yay. Go ahead. This is the part where I stare blankly at the microphone. I don't remember what I'm supposed to be doing. All right, let's start over. Awkward pause. I'm going to wrestle some papers. Okay. Now one, two, three. AJ Delatonia, and this is Hashtag Am Writing, the weekly podcast about writing all the things, short things, long things, fiction, nonfiction. This is the hopefully helpful podcast about sitting down and getting that work done. I'm Jess Leahy. I'm the author of The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation, and hopefully a third book, we'll see, um, that I just handed in to my agent yesterday. I'm very excited. And you can find my work at uh, The New York Times and The Atlantic and The Washington Post. And I'm Serena Bowen. I'm the author of 35 romance novels, and my new one is called Boyfriend, and it is so flippin' cute. I just cannot wait until it lands in reader hands. And I am KJ Delantonia, author of the novel The Chicken Sisters and the forthcoming novel In Her Boots. Cover reveal uh, actually probably has already happened by the time y'all are listening to this, but I'm pretty excited about that. And the book itself will be out next summer, so summer of 2022. And just to clarify, sadly, Jess did not hand in an actual book. Oh no, I agent. handed in, sorry. I could have had <laughs> I handed in a proposal that I've been wearing. And and if you've been listening, you know that these proposals 
they take a long time. And then there's like this whole, you know, fixing it and handing it in again and then fixing it again and handing it in again. But this was a big deal because this is the second pass after my agent has seen it. So now it's going in, the the proposal went into my agent. And then if she likes it and we fix some more things, then it'll go to my editor, hopefully. And then hopefully she'll buy it. Well, so when that's well the done, extended process. When well done, those proposals are roadmaps. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it may take you almost longer to write the proposal. Not, I suspect, in this case, but but still. Uh, it's I have to say, a lot lately, of guidance. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Lately, the um, the proposal thing has been really fulfilling, actually. Not only is it fulfilling for me because it helps me know the book better, but um, Jenny Nash um, has been using the proposal for the addiction inoculation as a blueprint for a nonfiction Ooh. proposal writing class that she does. And uh, two people have sold books using that proposal as a template. I just got an email from one uh, day before yesterday. And so it's just so cool to hear that like this thing that I had to create anyway is getting a second life as something that has been helpful for other people. So that's been really, really cool. And it's kind of like in the Facebook group when people start selling work or meeting deadlines and, and getting stuff published. It's just the coolest thing to be a part of someone else's process of getting something out into the world. That is really amazing. Well, great. We're talking about process because um, I'm the one who came up with today's topic. I wanted to sit down and talk about, it's a little hard to explain, but I wanted us to talk about inner dialogue, which applies, It's a lot of it is in fiction, but it totally applies in memoir and, you know, nonfiction when written the way that you do and the way that I do, it contain it tends to contain a fair amount of memoir. I mean, unless you're writing a biography about Alexander Hamilton, in which case, you know, uh, go you. And even then, I suppose, depending on how you're writing the, the biographer, there might be moments when this would come in handy. But I wanted to talk about the need to use inner dialogue to show, to bring the reader into your character or your world and thoughts and how to do that without without feeling like you're telling. So, you know, I think especially a lot of us who come to this work from journalism or from other forms of writing, whatever they are, whether they're, you know, uh, collegiate uh, papers or uh, lawyerly writing, you come to this work and then you're, of course, you're told, show, don't tell. And the idea of saying, you know, I felt like a fool or, you know, I felt sick to my stomach. Those sentences just make us sort of go, oh, no, no, you can't you can't say that because that's you have to show it. You have to like, you know, I clutched my stomach and groaned or or, you know, I took the dunce cap off and threw it away in a corner. However, you would show those things. So I wanted to talk about how you actually do need to uh, do more than just show emotions. So that's our starting point. Anybody, I just, take it away. I just did this. So all of my books and I, so I have to make, I have to explain something. If um, in an earlier podcast, I talked about the fact that I'm also applying for a fellowship with this book and I can't talk about the fellowship because obviously I'm, it's still being considered. Um, but I have to always explain who I am at the beginning of my book proposal and why on earth I'm going to write this thing. And always, always, always my books come out of a place of 
I'm curious about this thing, or I had a crisis of confidence about this thing, or I became curious, whatever. So I, I have to do a fair amount of holy crud. You know, I thought I understood this thing and then this thing smacked me in the face and I realized I didn't understand it. And so I do have to do a fair amount of telling and, but I'm really, really careful to not do a couple of things, which is to, I try to tell, but give as much of the surrounding evidence. And I am trying to think of how to do this without giving away the beginning of the proposal I just sent in. But essentially I had something I was fairly sure about in my teaching and parenting life. And then something just sort of smacked me across the face. And I came to this realization that, you know, I don't fully understand this thing. And it makes me do a lot of questioning. And the one thing I can't do is start throwing questions at my reader. Like I can talk about the questions that I have that I would like to answer, but doing that thing where you start throwing questions at the reader and you're asking, yeah, so go, go ahead, KJ. Oh, no, I, I meant for you to finish your sentence, but no, it wasn't a problem. But I think rhetorical questions are the beginner writer's way of yes, trying absolutely. to show this. Um, yeah. and, and it's interesting. And I actually... I've got some examples that I'll, I'll read in a minute. And one of them even has a successful use of a rhetorical question. But yeah, that's that's what we do. We go, wait, could I have been wrong about everything? <laughs> or, you know, in the voice of the character, you know, she 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 gasped. Uh, you know, could she have mistaken Brian's intent? Whatever. <laughs> and it's awful. It's awful. I, it is awful. But the hard thing for me is that uh, I do have to ask a certain number of questions. So I start thinking, okay, these question marks are going to be severely rationed. They are like exclamation right, right. points. And then I only get, I'm only going to get like two. So how am I going to use them as best as possible? Because the, you know, the minute you start asking your reader questions, you hand over your sense of authority. You hand over to, you're allowed to say, this is my, this question was my starting place. And I became an expert in order to answer this question. But the more you're asking questions of your reader, the more you're saying, I don't have any idea here. You guys take over from here. <laughs> yeah, Serena. Well, it's sort of important to to acknowledge ahead of time that this style of writing and this thing that we all would like to accomplish is a trend. You know, if you open Middle March, every time a new character is introduced, there's like a four-page description of the character. Physical traits, proclivities, interests, you know. So it used to be perfectly acceptable, I guess if you're George Eliot, to um to wade in and describe the character's entire life story before they actually get a word in edgewise. And um, novels tend not to sound like that anymore, especially, especially in the commercial spaces that we're trying to put them. So, um, so that means what we're really looking for is to always be accomplishing more than one thing in any given spot. And when you just describe how your character is feeling, if you say, and I felt like such an idiot, um, you are really only showing us one thing there. And if you go on and on ab about how much you feel like an idiot for a paragraph, then you really pigeonholed yourself into this one spot where, you know, only one thing is happening. But it's almost how I learned to write dialogue when I read in some writing book that I don't remember. People don't actually say what they mean. 
And that was very clarifying to me because it freed me up to write dialogue where the reader knew that the main character was lying or at least not expressing herself fully. So then that that works in um, internal monologue as well, when the reader actually knows something that's a little bit more dedicated and refined than the narrative voice is even able to express. You know, he drives me insane and nobody should be that attractive. You know, that that there's a lot going on in those seven or eight words or whatever. It's um, I don't I like him, but I don't want to or, you know, just like conflict, conflict in 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 two short sentences accomplishes more than than expressing one's um, opinion the way it really exists, like in, in the plainest speech. Yeah, I pulled an I, uh, I pulled an example from a book that we both just read and that I'm sure Jess is going to read. Um, Rosaline Palmer takes a cake, and it says she laughed and then hoped he'd meant her to. And you know that's that's what she did, what she's thinking about it, and also it tells you that she is you know that she's someone who is worried about what this uh, other person thinks of her you know, and maybe unnecessarily. So there's a, I mean, that's, that's just one little sentence. And I, I think, you know, that could sound like, you know, it's what she hopes. So it might sound to, uh, to us as we're writing, it's kind of like, oh, well, but should I say she laughed nervously instead? Um, and the answer is no, that is not as useful. <laughs> There's actually a lot of that in the book um, Beach Reads, where they have, you know, because she has um, two characters in different houses, but they can kind of see each other. And they're at one point, they're like sending um, signs back and forth. And there's a lot of internal dialogue happening that's about the person in the other house. And she does an incredibly good job there with her dialogue, um, Emily Henry, of of doing double duty with her internal dialogue because those characters are spending a lot of time with themselves by themselves, but communicating with each other through signaling and stuff like that. And so I noticed when I read that book that a lot of her dialogue does double duty in that book. It's really good. I often have an editor or my editor saying, you know, but what is the character feeling here? But what is the character feeling here? Um, Because I really tend to feel like I did it and I didn't. And I did, I even pulled an example uh, to throw into the show notes, um, which is a, a little long to read, but I guess I will. Um, yeah, so, yeah, this is a first person. And the original thing that I wrote says, Jasmine was still a little leery of the animals. So I set out to charm her with them. And uh, then my editor sticks a note in and says, maybe Rhett, that's my main character. That's the, that's the, the point of view character. Maybe Rhett could think here about how the animals always made her feel good, and she wants to impart some of that to Jasmine, who is stretching so far outside her comfort zone to help Rhett. This could be a nice friendship moment to show Rhett caring about Jasmine. Um, because I'm really bad about that. I, I Poor Rhett never gets, like, she never gets to express any uh, feelings in my, in my earlier drafts. So the... The revision of that says, some barn time would absolutely help me feel better. If Jazz was a little more comfortable with them, I would know, I knew she would feel the same way, and I wanted that for her. I didn't care about, yeah, it, it goes on. I wanted her to know that the farm was a refuge for her no matter what. 
And that causes me to also notice that that first sentence doesn't entirely make sense, which is unfortunate because this isn't final caveats, but I can fix it. (laughs) (laughs) And that is possibly why you should read your book out loud before turning it in, which I didn't do. And maybe I will when I copy edit it out. That's a really, really good example for that. I really like that a lot. And, and it's, it helps. That's why an editor is so great is you're sometimes you can be so inside your character's heads or working so hard thinking, oh, this has to be dialogue outside of the person's head. And yet maybe it doesn't. I love that. I love that perspective. There's an author that we've also talked about before. Um, Talia Hibbert writes wonderfully succinct uh, internal monologue. And um, it's really her thing. Her books um, are heavily introspective in in a way where she gets a lot of drama out of out of a small bit of dialogue and and characters reactions to it and and that's so well done so um sometimes i'll think about her stuff or or alexis hall's um rosaline palmer is the another one you just mentioned Mm -hmm. some people are just really excel at this. And if you think about it, not every genre or type of book requires this. Like if you're in the midst of a thriller and things are blowing up around you, you you don't need to care quite as much because then you can use the reader's emotions about what they would feel like if a building exploded, you know, as a shorthand. You know, we all feel pretty much the same way about things blowing up too close to us. But we don't all feel the same way about that guy making that comment. Right. So, you know, you have to find the moments of greatest burden. And what's really interesting is that this, uh, in fiction, it can be, it's first person or third person. Third person needs this stuff just just as much, if not more. Um, And so that can be really hard to finesse. Sometimes I will be asked whether a book should be in first person or third person. And usually it's the wrong question. Um, because these, because as KJ just pointed out, it doesn't matter for this kind of close observation which voice you're in. You can do it either way. And so your decision about third versus first should be based on entirely different things. <laughs> Yeah, I moved mine from third to first, which was super fun. Highly recommend it if, you know, you'd like something to do with a few months and you have a manuscript laying around. I, I, I suggest this as, as a, yeah. yeah. Um, but I did it because my character's motivations for making this incredibly dumb choices that she makes were really not coming across in, in third person. It was really hard to to be in there with her and understand and sympathize with the dumb choices. So it wasn't about needing to get her emotions across. It was more about, I don't know, and maybe that's a similar thing, but it just, it just wasn't working. No, sometimes it can provide, third person can provide some distance if you need the distance, but it sounds like you, you needed less distance. I needed less distance because it was really easy to judge her. Um, even just even with the slightest bit of removal. Going back to nonfiction for a second, one thing I realized that I do is when I have a bunch of ideas that I've been dancing around and suddenly they come together and 
become clear for me as the person writing it and a bunch of different ideas can come together in a way that um, really works. I can use my own voice to talk about the fact that, oh, I hadn't understood how these two things work together. And in this moment, I suddenly understood how these two things came together. And not only does that help personalize the learning for the reader, it also helps underline, oh, this is important. This is a synthesis of two ideas that are disparate, but come together in a way. So it it gives me almost like a little flag to the reader to say, no, 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 pay attention, because this is something that um, even the author hadn't previously understood. So I'm really careful about sort of breaking through and saying, you know, I still don't get it. Why do students not learn very well when blah, 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 blah. And I save it for moments like, you know, hey, I'd been doing this one thing and now I'm doing this other thing because I read about it. And when I brought those two ideas together, they made this really nice, um, it made this really nice synthesis for me. So you have to be really careful with it because the one thing that I hate more than anything is when an author bludgeons you over the head with either in fiction, like, you know, like when you're watching a movie or reading a book and someone, you know, an idea is suddenly really clear and then they do the extra step of telling you or they do the extra step of going over and focusing on the clue over there in the corner that you're supposed to be paying attention to. That drives me bananas. So you have to also be careful not to um, make your reader feel stupid. So does this come early for you, Jess, do you, or do you tend to put too much in, or is it something you find yourself needing to go fill in later? Uh, I always put too much of everything in first. <laughs> I put too many facts in. I put too much uh, questioning in, mainly because sometimes, like, you know, I said I'll allot myself only a certain number of question marks, but not in the beginning, because sometimes that's a signal to me that I, I really was questioning something at that point. And so for me, final manuscript is a whole lot of weeding out. I put everything in first. And even if I don't, and the other thing, I mean, this becomes clear when I'm working on uh, second drafts of something, I always keep a document next to my main document called um, orphaned excerpts or orphaned bits or whatever, because I'm so afraid of deleting something and then forgetting that it existed, (laughs) that I always keep them around because who knows, maybe I'll want to put that in later, but yeah, I'm a taker outer. I do that too. And I never, ever use the stuff that I deleted. It's just a security blanket. Yep. Yeah, it's yep. definitely Same. a security blanket, mainly because when Tim, Tim and I have written together, Tim's my husband, for those of you who are new to the podcast, Tim and I have written together a bunch for uh, Washington Post and the New York Times. And he'll just, he'll just go in there and delete like sentences. And I'm like, hold on, you might need that. What are you doing? How can, how are you going to remember what you had? And he just does. And I'm paranoid about that. So anyway, um, Serena, are you a putter in or a taker outer? I think I write thin on the first pass. You do? Okay. Yeah. Like I'll go back and find just pure lines of dialogue, no blocking, no, you know, no nothing. I aspire to, to this. <laughs> but I think you and I have talked about this, Serena, that we both think that probably Talia Hibbert's early drafts, and we're just spitballing because we don't know her, um, but I imagine them as like being all internal dialogue, whereas mine are zero internal dialogue. And yours, I think, have evolved over the years, but skew towards less internal dialogue. Am I right? Yeah, I I tend not to get trapped in the internal stuff and I have to go back and put it in. So because I write romance, um, I can end up with a very spare, you know, romance and I have to go back in and make sure I have those lines 
where, um, where somebody is saying something that's very romantic because, you know, I, I would rather show everything like actions matter more than words all day long. And, um, and uh, sometimes I forget to actually say the things that readers want to hear. And that's, I mean, that's a great point is that readers to some extent, they want this inside the, the whole, one of the points of reading fiction and memoir in particular is to be in somebody's head that isn't yours for a while. And so, you know, readers want to hear that internal voice so that they're more a part of the whole moment, not just the action of the moment, but the emotion of the moment. And that's what we're trying to do with this internal dialogue stuff. I pulled another example. This is from a brilliant book that, you know, if you're you're not just going to go buy this right now, I I don't even want to know you. No, that's an exaggeration. But this is... (laughs) from We Are Not Like Them, which is by Christine Pride and Joe Piazza. And um, this, it's it's very good, but maybe more about that in the am reading section. Anyway, I pulled this little piece of internal dialogue. This is, and, and this is a first person book. I'm relieved to see that the crowd is really, no, sorry. I'm relieved to see that the crowd really is peaceful. So many faces filled with righteous conviction and purpose. Nonetheless, my cynicism kicks in. Ain't nothing changed but the music. All the clever signs and chants, the people who showed up just so they could post it to their social media, what does it add up to? Now, look, she even got a rhetorical question in there, and it works. Um, and you can tell just from that, that those two sentences, you can tell what's going on. You can tell where this person is. You probably can tell something about them. I, I think, you know, these... This is a two point of view book and um, there's a lot of internal dialogue that's done really well because this is very much a book that's not just about the action, but how the action plays out in the people's heads. What I really like is the combination, especially um, Serena does this a lot in sort of the second act of her books, which is a lot of internal dialogue that plays into the tension about what the other person is not understanding. Like inherently there's some miscommunication or some misunderstanding or some secret that the other person doesn't know. And so there's a lot of yak, yak, yak in back and forth out loud, but it's often the internal dialogue that really sort of keeps the tension because you just want to yell at the character and say, but that's not what he means when he says that, or he's not telling you about the fact that he's got a sibling or whatever. And that's what makes it really fun is that combination of um, what the character thinks they know versus, and, and then also the, by contrast, what they're saying, that's not what we know that they actually mean all of that sort of tension between the actual things they're saying and the things they're thinking is really fun. And, and what keeps that, tension up in the second half so well in Serena's books. Man, when we talk about it like this, it sounds really hard to do. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, some of it just kind of comes and then you only have to work on the rest of it. Right? That is true. Yeah. Yes. Because otherwise it's just like, sounds really hard. But, that, but, you know, you gave a great example of it. You know, even now you've, you're doing your second, you've done your second book and your editor was the person who had to come back to you and say, well, maybe that isn't an out loud thing. Maybe it's, that's an inside your head yeah. thing. And, you know, it's always nice to have that other, 
that other eye on your work. We actually had a conversation, my editor and I, where I was like, yeah, I had to put all the emotion in last and the chicken sisters too. And she's like, you have no idea how relieved I am. And I was just like, okay, great. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. You can be relieved. I promise to put some emotion in. So that's, that's what you get poor editor when you don't buy the book, I guess. Well, that's also what a great editor does. That's so different from just being a good reader. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not a fiction editor. And so I would read something and I would probably say, you know, this is just off. I don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. And yet a great editor says, no, no, no. It's because it's mostly all even a great editor can give you. The important thing about editing is to, if, if, if somebody thinks something is wrong, it probably is, but they might be wrong about how you should fix it. I said that a a couple of episodes ago. And also I think it's a famous Neil Gaiman quote, but it's, (laughs) it's just, it's, it's just, True. So I was coaching someone recently and I was talking about uh, a paragraph where I felt like it was exposition. It felt to me like, you know, you're, you're just, you're telling me a lot of things that the characters would know just so that the reader would know. And she was trying to argue with me. And finally, I just had to step her back and say, okay, listen, I'm being the reader here. Um, and as a reader, there's something about this paragraph that's flagging me. So you can have a couple of other people read it, and that is totally fine. But if your readers are saying something's wrong, something's wrong. They may be wrong about what it is, but if your readers are saying something's wrong, you need to take another look. Um, that's that's kind of that's a pretty much a hard and fast rule. Which would be so hard for me because I don't let anyone read anything until my editor and agent are pretty much done with it, which is why I could probably use some extra readers in there before. Well, I just get if, so- if, if they tell you, you, you listen, but I, I've definitely seen you be sort of like, well, okay, I'm clearly not getting my point across here mm-hmm. now. So if they've said, I don't like this, your response isn't, well, then I'll take it out. Sometimes your response is, then you haven't understood what I was trying to say and then you fix it. And that's, but the point is that you're taking, you're taking the, the criticism as, as useful, even if you don't take the advice. It's just so hard, especially with, you know, when you're talking about writing people and getting inside, so, in, clo- in, so inside their heads, so inside your head, so inside the plot that um, sometimes it's hard to see, see it from the outside and see the forest for the trees, as Betsy Lerner would say, forest yes. for the trees. Yeah. All right. Well, I think this was, I think this was great. I hope it was useful for some of y'all who are out there trying to figure out that line between inner dialogue and flagging, waving a red flag that gives your characters emotions. So let's take a sec and then let's talk a little bit about what we've been reading. You know, I have something to share. All right. Who wants to go first? I know KJ has something to share. (laughs) I do. Um, So I just finished uh, We Are Not Like Them by Christine Pride and Joe Piazza. I'm a big fan of Joe's. She has written one solo novel, maybe more than one. I know she's written Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, but she also really, she often writes with other writers and she's really um, gifted at it. So this came out um, October 5th. So it is out and Christine Pride was actually Joe's editor. And what this is, is the story of two best friends who grow up together, a a black woman and a white woman. And the white woman has married a cop. And the black woman is a television journalist. And that cop is involved in a teenager shooting. 
And this is about how they're able to maintain, how they struggle to maintain their friendship and everything that sort of goes from there. And this is the kind of big, high-concept book that would have made me throw my idea out into the trash can and run screaming away from it as far as possible and possibly duct tape the can shut. Because this is really hard. Uh, And they have pulled it off pretty darn well. And the amazing thing about it is that it's also still fun to read. I probably wouldn't have read it if I'd known what it was about, but I had it in ARC and I did not, um, (laughs) it didn't turn the book over. I was just like, oh, it's Joe Piazza. I love her. I'm going to start reading. And I start reading and I'm like, oh, oh, oh. But I kept going because it's so, I don't know how something about such a heavy topic can also be entertaining, but but, but it is. It feels wrong to say, but it's true. So don't be scared of it. Uh, go grab it, and man, would it make a book club read. I am wow. dying to know how that conversation went. So you're saying this is between Joe Piazza and the person who was her editor, I'm mm-hmm. assuming not the editor on this book because the person is also one of the writers. But I'm just how, I'm just curious how that conversation went. Like, was she still <laughs> the editor? Why don't we write a book together? Said, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I, don't, I know, I don't... but... I don't know how often editors do that. Actually, it's funny you say that because there was a tweet. Uh, Jody Picoult and Jenny Finney Boylan were tweeting just the other day about the fact that they have written a book together. And it started because <laughs> Jenny Finney Boylan messaged Jody and said, I had a dream that we wrote a book together. Here's the basic <laughs> premise. And Jody said, Well, we should do that. <laughs> and then they did. I love that. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I love that. Well, I did actually manage to read one thing this week, and it's this. The Enneagram in Love, A Roadmap for Building and Strengthening Romantic Relationships by Stephanie Barron Hall. And um, we've talked before on the podcast, we had a whole episode that KJ and I did about Enneagram personality typing and um, as character work. And that is exactly how I'm reading this book. And so I did discover that in the book I'm working on now, um, my hero is a one and my heroine is an eight. So that was very illuminating and I enjoyed reading about it. That's pretty cool. That sounds fun. I discovered an author with, you know, when we've talked this about this before, when you discover someone and you know, there are going to be more, there's going to be more than one book that you're going to get to read like lots of books that are going to be great. So my new discovery is um, Thor Hansen. He is a biologist. I believe he's British. And I'm reading an extremely dorky and wonderful book called The Triumph of Seeds about how seeds, you know, how seeds work and all the cool natural history of seeds. But he has another book called Buzz about bees and another book about feathers. And this is the kind of deep dive that I live for. And his writing is wonderful. And I thought of you too, because the beginning of the book about seeds, he explained He's always been fascinated by seeds, but his toddler was really fascinated by seeds, but couldn't make the sibilant S sound. And so would show him seeds that he wanted, that the kid wanted the dad to see. And she would say, heed, heed, like <laughs> heed this cool thing. And so I just thought that was a really good story and, and have really loved the book. So um, Thor Hansen, I think is going to be um, sort of my author for the next couple of weeks. Sounds amazing. Although I'm very stuck on the idea that British people would not name their child Thor. <laughs> that just doesn't <laughs> seem very British. I could, I could be wrong. I will. No, while you we're, could while be we're... totally right. But it just does. If I were developing a character who had, had been born and raised in, in Great Britain, I 
would only name them Thor under some very specific okay. circumstances. I am absolutely incorrect. Thor Hansen was born and raised on in the Pacific Northwest, where he now lives on an island with his wife and son. That sounds okay. more oh like totally wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm there for that. Yeah, I, I, that that sounds, you know, as as a potential reader evaluating this character and how realistic they are, I'm 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 more on board for the island in the Pacific Northwest. I, th- um, I think I may have to write him a letter. He is not on social media, so I can't rave on social media and tag him to let him know how much I'm loving his book. So this is going to be one of those moments where you write a letter. I'm so well, excited. That so many things about that sentence are amazing, including he is not on social media. <laughs> Hashtag right. mixed feelings. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. Well, this was great. Yeah. I hope this is helpful to someone. And and I know KJ said at one point, oh, this is making it all sound very complicated and difficult, but you just got to get in there and start doing it, I think. You, yeah, write part of it and then figure out whether you got too much of it and too little, too little of it. And then away you go. And if you have questions, a great place to get them answered would be in the hashtag writing Facebook group. Also, we are always happy to hear from you, especially if you have a question that we could answer on the podcast. You can email us m. You can email us at amwritingatsubstack.com. I finally got that one down. Um, (laughs) We might answer your question on a later podcast. We might email you back. We might even invite you on for a little bit of coaching about your particular dilemma. So that could be either horrifying or super fun, but it's, it's, you know, you're not locked into that if you send us an email. Please also head over to the Am Writing Podcast website, which is uh, amwritingpodcast.com, very, very novel and innovative name. And there you can find the show notes. You can find everything that we quoted in this episode. You can sign up to get those show notes dropped in directly into your mailbox. You'll find all the other episodes, lots of bonus content, and the opportunity, as always, to sign up to support the podcast that we hope that you love. One last ask, if you like the podcast, please go to whatever platform you're listening on and rate us. I was having a conversation with some authors about when they choose to do podcasts versus when we choose not to do a podcast. And often it's because we go and look at how many ratings they have to get an idea of how many dedicated listeners they have. So having more ratings is a good thing. So if you enjoy the podcast, please go rate us over at your favorite platform. And then hit that share button and share it with a friend. Hey, we're asking, right? All the asks, right. And until next week, everyone, keep your butt in the chair and your head in the game. The Hashtag Am Writing podcast is produced by Andrew Perella. Our intro music, aptly titled Unemployed Monday, was written and played by Max Cohen. Andrew and Max were paid for their time and their creative output because everyone deserves to be paid for their work.